Micah chapter 2. Chuck had a black father and a white mother who were separated in our mostly white private school. Chuck lived in the New London, Connecticut projects while almost all of us lived in middle class white suburbia. Chuck wore clothes that didn't fit him well, while our starched khaki pants and polo shirts had been bought to fit and wash and iron by our own mothers the night before. Chuck had dirt behind his ears and a Kool-Aid mustache that seemed to be almost permanently tattooed as we watched to see it would be gone the next morning, day after day. And Chuck was made fun of for these things. Chuck was avoided for these things. Chuck wasn't included at recess for these things. Chuck wasn't included at the lunch table or conversations for these things. When it was time to find a partner for a class project, an assignment, Chuck would always be the one looking around helplessly in longing and fear while everyone else grouped together in their cliques and buddies. As a result, Chuck floundered in schoolwork. He floundered socially, certainly, and eventually um, Chuck left the school. And I'm ashamed to say that I felt bad for Chuck, but my identity was in the wrong place and I was too worried about my image and social status with my peers to be a friend to Chuck and to speak out for Chuck and protect him. I don't know what happened to Chuck or where he is today. And if he's part of the average statistic of kids treated like he was, I feel responsible. Chuck was vulnerable, and we exploited it. But I'm thankful that our God is not the way that I was to Chuck and others. He loves the downtrodden, and he judges the oppressor. We saw that in our passage last week in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that the evil ones were plotting in their minds an evil scheme, even on their beds. And then in the morning they would put it to action and there was an evil strike in verse 2. But God was watching and so there would be a just settlement in verses 3 and 4. He would make things even. And then they would separate them, the the wicked, from the righteous in verse 5. There is a just separation. And so in that vein, that in verses 6 through 11, Micah picks up. And verse 6 through 11 are a little bit difficult to follow. But I think if you'll work work with me and walk through it, you'll see what Micah's message is to these people. And verse 6... Micah quotes the people by saying, first of all, prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy, they shall not prophesy to them, they shall, they, that they shall not take shame. O thou that are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened or impatient, are these his doings. What Micah is doing here is telling us the, the, the word from those who are the wicked and who had hired their own prophets who would give them a message that would um, not confront their sin. And the people had said to Micah, don't prophesy against us. Don't prophesy against us. Prophesy ye not, verse 6. Say they to them that prophesy, they shall not prophesy to them. Now, 
It's a little encouraging to hear that Micah apparently was not the only one who was prophesying to these people the truth of God. There is always a, a remnant here. But the prophets, uh, the, 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 their own false prophets, the wicked false prophets, they do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace isn't going to happen to us. Punishment isn't going to happen to us. They had a, first of all, a hardened refusal, you see, in verses 6 and 7. God had said in verse 5 what would happen, verses 4 and 5, and they pushed back against that. There was a hardened refusal. A hardened refusal. And if you're taking notes, there's an outline in your bulletin on the back side of your insert there. A hardened refusal. There was a prophetic pushback. Don't prophesy, they said. Don't prophesy about these things. We're going to be okay. We're going to be all right. And then in verse uh, 7, they say, O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened or impatient? What they were saying is they were perverting the promises of God. They were perverting the promises of God. They said they were saying, you descendants of Jacob, should it be said the Lord is impatient? Does he do such things? After all, does the Bible say God is long-suffering? He's not going to punish us, was their argument. And they were half-baked on a half-truth. They believed a perverted promise. They perverted the promises of God. They thought because they were Abraham's descendants that they were part of privilege and safe no matter what they did. And this mentality continued in Israel in Jesus' day, didn't it? You read in John chapter 8. They would focus on God's patience and His long-suffering. And they would ignore or try to explain away those passages, passages that taught that God's long-suffering is not forever. There will be a day of reckoning. And He will judge sin. And perhaps they were thinking of passages that were foundational in their understanding, like Exodus chapter 4, uh, 34, verses 6 and 7, where the Lord passes by Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And maybe they had ignored the other part of it that follows... And that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. I had a conversation a couple years ago with a man who used that verse all the time to say that everybody's going to be saved one day. Whether they want to be saved or not, they're going to be saved and they're going to be welcomed into heaven. They missed that second part there. And people do that. I have a pick-and-choose theology which really only reveals that the one you believe is not the God of heaven, but yourself. You put yourself in the place of the God of heaven. So there were perverted promises there with their hardened refusal that made up the depravity of their heart. But God is going to deal with it. And so in the next few verses, there will be heaven's rebuke. Heaven's rebuke in uh, the second part of verse 7 through verse 9. Look what he says at the end of verse 7. Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly. Now this is the Lord speaking. The people had said, uh, we're saint. We're in God's patient. He's loving. He's merciful and kind. And he is. But Jehovah responds, do not my words do good to them that walk uprightly. 
the covenant promises, the agreement that they had made. So there's heaven's rebuke. There's heaven's rebuke, first of all, with a plain promise. God, in His grace, really, brings clarity and a deceptive murkiness to the false teachers by reminding them of the conditions of the covenant that He made with Israel. He really puts them in their place. So there is a plain promise. Do not my words do good to the ones who ways are upright, is what He's saying here. Now, what does it mean to be one who walked uprightly in Israel? There is a concept um, that is even in this book here. If you go to Micah chapter 6, and probably the most famous verse in the book, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, that shows what a righteous man of Israel was like. And in the context of Micah chapter 6, Israel was still doing their um, sacrifices, etc. But their heart was far from Him. And God says in verse 7, I'm not going to be pleased with thousands of rams if your heart isn't in the right place. In verse 8 He says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In order to better understand what Micah understood, what God required of the Israelite in walking uprightly, in Micah chapter uh, 2 and verse 7, we need to understand a word that is used in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And the word is to do justly, paired with and to love mercy. Of course, walking humbly with thy God and all of this. To do justly is an interesting Hebrew word. It's a word um, that is uh, translated in our in the translation we're using here this morning many times as judgment. Judgment. Um, sometimes it's translated just as it is here to do justly. It's the Hebrew word mishpeh, and it's very simply in its very simplest form means to treat people right. Treat people right and fair. In other words, having fair and simple and honest dealings with your neighbor. Sharing uh, generously with your time, your resources, and protection to the needy. And punishing evildoers and oppressors. And put even more simply, in one little sentence, it is simply giving care and protection and punishment to the oppressors. Care and protection to those who are oppressed and punishment to the oppressors. And when you look up this word in a Hebrew concordance, you'll find out that it's usually related to four categories of people. Four categories of people it frequently comes up for. And they were the most vulnerable in Israel's society, and they were widows, orphans, immigrants, also called strangers or sojourners, and the poor. Those four. And I just want to walk you through this, because I think when uh, when we understand what Micah will say later on in in chapter 2... that, that will be in such contrast to what an Israelite was supposed to be um, that you'll understand the severity of it. So let me just share a few passages with you. And we're gonna, I'm going to walk through, a, um, read really, uh, several Old Testament passages that has this word or this concept in it. Beginning in Zechariah, and some of these are going to be hard to find, so I'm just putting them up on the screen for you. But Zechariah 7, 9 through 11. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment. That's the word mishpate. And show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. 
But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. You see, in an agrarian society, a farming society that these people would have grown up in and lived in, uh, there would be people who had been very vulnerable and would have had very little social influence or, or buying power, economic power, or, or social power in society. And if there was a famine, or there was unrest, uh, or there was an invasion in their land, guess who would be the first people hit with that? These people. They would feel the effects in starvation, exploitation, etc. But God loved these broken people. And his character was to be reflected in Israel and the Hebrews and how they treated them. And Israel was to be concerned about them because Yahweh was concerned about them. What's interesting here is, is Psalm 146, um, verses 7 through 9, says, talking about God, introducing God and who he is, says which or who executed judgment, that's the same word, mishpate, for the oppressed. Which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners. The Lord openeth the eyes of the blind. The Lord raiseth them that are bowed down. The Lord loveth the righteous. The Lord preserveth the strangers. That's the sojourner, the person traveling through the land, an immigrant. He relieveth the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turneth upside down. That's the idea here. It was part of the, the, the law in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. He doesn't have favorites here. But verse 18 says, He doth execute the judgment, mishpate, of the fatherless and the widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. What is interesting about that verse is this. If you looked at all the ancient cultures and their religious um, uh, ceremonies and the way they viewed life, um, they looked at the power of their gods being channeled through their leaders, kings or the generals or the nobles, etc. So the power of their gods they worship would come through the people at the top, the cream of society, so to speak. But notice who Yahweh takes his stand with. The broken of Israel. The fatherless, the widow, the immigrant. He's a gracious and merciful God. In contrast to the nation's values around them, that's where God showed his value. You can see it again in Psalm 68, verses 4 and 5. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name Yah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Open thy mouth for the dumb, or the ones who can't speak, you speak for. And the cause of all, such as are appointed to destruction, or people who are destitute, destitute, excuse me, open your mouth for them. Open thy mouth, judge righteously. Again, mishpate. And plead the cause of the poor and needy. See, in the nations of Israel's agreement with God's law, where the blessings and curses were pronounced at the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 27.19 says this, Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment, that withholds the mishpate of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Jeremiah 22.3 Thus says the Lord, execute ye judgment, mishpate, and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. 
You see, Israel was to show the character of God. The God who had brought them in the covenant. And His glory. So that all the pagan nations would look at Israel and their life in Yahweh should be patterned after Yahweh. And the nation should be able to look at Israel and marvel at God's wisdom and glory. Look in Deuteronomy 4, 6-8. through 8. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say. So now Moses in Deuteronomy in this passage is going to say, here's why God gives you his covenant and his law here. So all the people hear these statutes that that God's given and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them? As the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for. And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? And one of the ways that Israel was to show God's glory and to honor Him was not doing what the pagans did. By beating down the downtrodden. But showing His beauty of honored mercy and grace. He talks in Deuteronomy around chapter 6 of how out of all the nations, I chose you for one of the least. Why? No reason other than His mercy. Proverbs chapter 14, 31, probably a more familiar passage, says, He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker. You see the connection there. But he that honoreth him, honoreth who? The maker, the creator, hath mercy on the poor. And Jeremiah 22.16 is a rich verse here because it connects who God is with his heart for these people. He judgeth the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? We get a really full picture of it in the book of Job. You see, there are a couple passages in the book of Job that um, Job shares his life and shows why God could say of Job, remember what God says of Job in Job 1.1, that he was a perfect and an upright man, one that feared God and hated evil. Well, in history, in, the, in, in, in history, these passages were actually written before Israel was a nation. But they give us a picture of how Israel was supposed to live under their covenant. And one of these passages is in Job chapter 29. It's a larger passage, so it might be harder to read on the screen. But Job 29 and verse 12 through through 17. Now listen how how, uh, Job describes uh, what flows out of a man who is in a right relationship with God. Look how he describes Mishpate. Because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment, my mishpate was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not I searched out, and I break the jaws of the wicked and pluck the spoils out of his teeth. You see, it wasn't just charity. Sometimes we think of of helping the poor as charity, and charity is just something you you give to somebody. Uh, But he was eyes to the blind, he says. He was feet to the lame. He cared for the needs of the poor as a parent, as a father would care for the needs of his children. 
And he was active in his stand against those who were oppressing them. And Job 31 um, gives us some more details in verse 13. Beginning, he says, um, If I did despise the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they contended with me, what then shall I do when God riseth up? And when he visiteth, what shall I answer him? Did not he that made me in the womb make him his servant? You see, the, 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 the Bible always elevates people in the image of God. Here, no difference between Job the master and the servant. Notice his goals uh, for the poor and the widow in verse 16. If I have withheld the poor from their desire or their delight. In other words, um, the goal was to turn the poor man's life into the light. Or cause the eyes of the widow to fail. He made her eyes no longer weary, but light up. Or have eaten my morsel myself alone, and the fatherless have not eaten thereof. For from my youth he was brought up with me as with a father, and I have guided her from my mother's womb. If I have seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, and if he were not warm with the fleece of my sheep, if I lifted up my hand against the fatherless when I saw my help in the gate, then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade, and mine arm be broken from the bone. In other words, what use is my arm if it's not to help? Then he says this, He skipped down a few verses. He keeps this thought going. He says, to not do these things would be sin and offense to God. He says, for destruction from God was a terror to me. And by reason of his highness, I could not endure. This also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge. For I should have denied the God that is above. You see, Job, very involved. And he's not satisfied with halfway measures. Sometimes you can help people and it actually hurts them. He's not satisfied with halfway measures or or tossing some dollars here and there. Job was passionate about exhibiting the heart of his God. Well, the heart of his God. What is God's heart? Well, I showed you a little bit here, but look how Psalm 33 verse 5 says it. He loveth righteousness in mishpah. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And then one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, mishpah, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Um, Ezekiel 18, uh, 5 and 7 through 9 is a similar list for Israel for, to, to, to what Job said. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful, mishpah, and right, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment, he hath not given forth upon usury or interest, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord God. I'm not, I don't have time to read all of this here, but in, uh, well, in this one I do, but Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, God had shown care to Israel in Egypt. They were strangers in Israel, or in Egypt, weren't they? And Israel then was to show that same care that he showed to them to others in the promised land. And he gives the reason, you can see it there. Love ye therefore the stranger, fatherless and the widow, he 
includes up ahead. For ye were strangers yourselves in the land of Egypt. And Isaiah 58. You know, one of the issues in the, in the book of Isaiah was that Israel was still doing all the religious ceremonies of the law, but their heart wasn't in it. And they were fasting and doing all kinds of things. And, and God says, this is the fast that I want you to do. Forget all this religiosity and the things that you're doing when your heart is far from me. It means nothing to me when your heart is far from me. But he says in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, This is the fast for you that I have chosen. To loose the bands of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free. And that ye break every yoke. Bondage here. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? And that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house. When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him. And that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. And then verse 8, you can see the blessing that would arise from that. So this kind of gives us a better picture of, of what God expected from Israel. His undeserving loving kindness. By choosing them out of the multitude of nations. Not because they were deserving or special, but only account of His mercy. On account of this, they were to image His mercy and grace and just nature to their neighbor. They were to um, do that specifically in protection, generous care, and just punishment of the oppressors of the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants in their midst. And so back in Micah chapter 2, you can see this. Now, God has given a plain promise. Um, it is the righteous who I, will, who I will bless, he said in the end of uh, verse 7. Um, and now he says, here's what's wrong. Here's what's wrong. And he gives them a strong, penetrating prosecution. He says in verse 8, even of late my people has risen up as an enemy. He's saying, lately my people risen up like an enemy. You have brutally betrayed your neighbors. He's saying the oppressors, the, 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 the nations that were, were uh, plotting against Israel may have just as well been the wicked Assyrians and what these people, their own people, were doing to their own neighbors. They're acting as enemies to their own neighbors. They are creating a hostile environment for Israel and one that was to their advantage to pillage others. And there are three things here that he lists um, in this penetrating prosecution. The first is, number one, exploiting the poor. Exploiting the poor. He says, you pull off the robe with a garment from them that pass by securely as men adverse from war. You strip off their robes from those who pass by without even a care, like men returning from battle. He charges them with attacking innocent passerbyers as if they were enemies. And the powerless become the prey of the powerful. Their goal is to take the, the robes of their unsuspecting and helpless victims. Um, these people who thought they were safe, they were in their own nation, and they were literally extorting and cheating the clothes off the backs of the people around them. Um, it's possible that this is a reference to what's spelled out in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24, that if someone had given his cloak as a pledge for a loan, um, they were to be returned by sunset, so he had something to cover his body at night when it was cold, sleeping. So the irony here, God is saying, is that the real enemies aren't the Assyrians. They're yourselves. You're enemies of your own selves. So they are exploiting the poor. And secondly, they were evicting the powerless. He says in verse 9, The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. You drive the women of my people from their, from their homes. They're dispossessing women of their homes. Widows, probably. 
And if so, their homes would be the ones that they inherited from their husbands. And widows were especially vulnerable to be taken advantage of. Um, even in Mark twelve forty, in Jesus' day, he accuses the, the Pharisees devouring widows' houses. Evicting the powerless. You can see their heart. In contrast to what we talked about, Mishpate. And then the third thing is, in verse 9... From their glory have you taken away, from their children have you taken away my glory forever. They're excluding the progeny here. You're taking away my glory. The idea is blessing from their children uh, by driving the women out of their homes, then their children would not have an inheritance. And God charges the rich and powerful with depriving these children of his blessing. Now, when people become poor through their own foolishness, They need a savior to change them. Uh, When it comes to the hands of evil men taking advantage of, of, of them, they need the judge of all the earth to punish and deliver them. And that is what he does. Look in verse 10. Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you even with a sore destruction. He hands down the sentence, and he may even have been using the very words that the oppressors were using to their victims. And so, in verses 10 and 11, there is, uh, after the exclusion of the, of the progeny, the, the descendants there with the children, there is, thirdly, a heavy retribution. A heavy retribution. He says, get up, go away. This isn't your resting place. It's defiled. There's a planned payday. It is ruined beyond all remedy. Everything these, these people had oppressed others for and labored for and stolen and cheated for, to have a comfortable life at someone else's expense was to be nothing. The tables will be flipped one day. Their dream of a resting place is going to be ripped out right underneath their feet. They've defiled the land. They've polluted the land. And now they will be excluded and put out of the land by the Assyrians. And they would be judged in two ways. They would be exiled. But also, look what else he says in verse 11. If a man walking in the spirit and a falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. The idea here is a liar and a deceiver. If he comes and says, I'm going to prophesy for you, uh, you're going to have plenty of wine and beer. And Micah says, that's just the prophet for you guys. That's just the prophet for this people. So, God's judgment is a planned payday, uh, payday, not payday, <laughs> planned payday, but also, he gives them a pleasing poison. You know how Paul talks about how in the latter days, people weep themselves, itching ears, that we just want to hear what they want to hear. Do you understand that's part of God's judgment? That's part of God's judgment, because he's withholding his revelation from them? You see, Israel had gone so far away from responding to the mercy and grace Yahweh had showed to them out of all the nations. And as they lost that wonder and loving God wholeheartedly, they lost their love for their neighbor and imaging his care for the vulnerable and broken here in this passage. And God would judge them by allowing them to be taken captive, but also, and sometimes we don't really understand this as judgment, but it is, to allow them to have their ears tickled. And not give them what they really needed on their way to the slaughterhouse. You know, they have, um, uh, there was a, an autistic man who was just a genius in understanding slaughterhouses. And he wrote a book about how to um, uh, have the cattle 
um, uh, that are headed to the slaughterhouse happy till it happens. Because if they're tense and you know worried, then their hormones will, will stiff, you know make the meat tough and etc. And so uh, his studies and findings have changed the way slaughterhouses operated. And so um, uh, these these cattle now that are on their way to the slaughterhouse uh, have have a very pleasant time till it's time to get the twenty two uh, in the head. And that's kind of what's happening here with Israel. God says, okay. I'll give you a pleasing poison. It'll taste so good. It'll make you feel so good. And then heavy retribution. Their ears would be tickled on the way to the slaughterhouse. As I was thinking about this passage, I thought, how about us? How about me? I don't live in that economy, in that way of life. There are some parallels here. Do I show the undeserved love of Christ that He showed me to others? Do I? I mean, think about it. Were we not more bankrupt and broken and fatherless and orphaned and strangers to his promises, the New Testament says? Even the worst, even worse than that, the Bible tells us we're enemies of God, we're rebels, we're dead in our sins. It's not sometimes we present the gospel as we're empty, we need God to fill us. And that's a part of it. But the truth of the gospel is that we're rebels to God. We're hostile to Him, the Bible says. We try to find our life in other things. And yes, that is why we're empty. But we are dead in our sins. We're running away from Him. We're running to eternal hell. Titus 3, 3 says, For we ourselves were at one time, or sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And then he says, But God, the grace of God, it's always in those two words, but God. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you marvel at what those words really mean for you? So because of His undeserved mercy and His grace, we're to shine out and we're to image His gracious nature to others with our deeds and our words of the eternal hope of the Gospel. He says later on in that chapter, this is the faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. See, there's some parallels here with Israel. What God had done for Israel, they were to show to others. How much more so in the New Testament. He says later on in verse 14, Let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. Now he said we're not saved by our works, but he says we're saved for these. Do you understand what Jesus saved you to? For? To be a blessing to others? Not only heaven and the riches of that, but in this life here, on the horizontal level, will be a blessing to others, as we're in a right relationship with Him, to break out of selfishness and greed and covetousness and classes and point people to the Savior who said, who said this, beginning of His ministry. He says this in Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, 
to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Spiritual sense. No, I didn't care. I didn't show care for Chuck or speak up for him because I was selfish. And I pushed out of my mind the extravagant grace that God had showed to me in Christ. I was not a living sacrifice who had offered my life to God out of my love for Him and His mercy to me. If I, if I saw Chuck today, I would apologize to him and I would ask him to forgive me. But when I see people like Chuck today and others, I have to catch the heart of the God of Israel, who is the God that I still worship, and marvel at how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, like the song says, and show by word and deed that love to the chucks that I meet. Let's pray.